Coming to a retreat can sometimes feel like putting our life in a pressure cooker. There's a little bit the sense I had in our group this afternoon, listening to some of the 10,000 varieties of uh, difficulty that we have in life. <clears throat> and sometimes we can have the impression that uh, a retreat is a difficult thing, a hard thing, to the point that we wonder, oh, why did we bother? Do I need to put my life in a pressure cooker? We might ask. But it's the same life. And whether we find ourselves in this or that situation, in our work life, our relationship life, our social life, our retreat life, if we want to divide it up that way, we find ourselves basically with the same mind, same habits, same issues we might say, and also the same possibilities as well. There's a, a book by an American author called John Kabat-Zinn, it's called Wherever You Go, There You Are. Shucks. <laughs> no escape. I haven't read the book, but the title's very good already. So, we come into retreat, and here we are. Whatever we notice arising from within us, arising around, from around us, the things that we come up against, the things that we find difficult, the things that we find nourishing as well, being revealed out of this life we're leading. And so being on retreat, kind of the container of the retreat strips away some of the uh, clutter, some of the thises and thats. Unfortunately, we still have plenty of internal thises and thats that we bring along with us. But some of the external ones, like the fridge and the pub and the, the other various kind of uh, places we go to escape from our life, if you like, are stripped away. So that the, the kind of idea with the retreat form in some ways is that we're just trying to simplify. Often simplify in order to be face to face with our life. To be directly in touch with our life. Often there's so many ways we can, we seek to escape. You might notice just on trips to the fridge, how many of the trips to the fridge, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, <laughs> how many trips to the fridge are really about hunger? <coughs> and how many are about uh, distracting ourselves from something unpleasant or trying to change a mood or a feeling? Trying in some way to escape 
from some difficult or unpleasant aspect of our life. And so when we come to retreat, those kind of possibilities are much more limited. Sort of herb tea is about as close as we can get. And so sometimes at the end of the sitting we scuttle off to, instead of going and doing that boring walking meditation, we go to the the altar of herb tea. And you might recognize that, that that kind of movement that's sometimes there, a wish to comfort, a wish to escape, in some, a subtle maybe, but in some way. So in that, in that stripping away of those kind of crutches, we have the opportunity to be more simple, to have more space in which to meet our life to look closely at it, to be still and silent and deeply interested in it. And if we just kind of think about the form, if we just were to describe the retreat form, it could sound uh, delightful. Everything's taken care of. Food is there, warm bed, some sitting around quietly, plenty of rest, some walking slowly and calmly around in beautiful grounds. Sounds like a some sort of paradise health club. I mean, maybe you could change the spelling a little bit and call it real tre- a real treat instead of a retreat. <laughs> so welcome to a real treat. <laughs> Sitting around, wandering around, eating, resting. A little bit of work in the mornings, but nothing too taxing sense of delight and appreciation that could be there for the form and for many coming back uh, lots of times to Gaia House some people spending months at a time here very much in, in the spirit of that sense of appreciation for the, for the environment and what's provided here and the sense of possibility within that but going along with that sense of uh, the ease and spaciousness and privilege in a way that we have to be in that kind of environment where everything's taken care of, we can also notice that it can be very hard to be here in all kinds of different ways. So I'd like to just look a little bit in the the talk this evening at some of the ways it can be hard to be here. And there's a contrast there because, as I described the kind of uh, things I, ju- I just mentioned about being here and how, how delightful that can sound, it would be hard to find anything particularly, tax- particularly hard about any of those activities. All we're asked to engage in is our, li- our hour of work and then some sitting quietly, some walking quietly, some resting quietly. I'm eating quietly. 
So, if we reflect in this way, we start to see that there's the, our experience may well be that it's hard to be here some of the time. Much of the time, maybe. Maybe only in a few moments amidst the delight and appreciation. But that it can be hard to be Period. It can be hard to be here or elsewhere. Whether it's in this more stripped away environment or whether it's in our other em- any other environment. Sometimes the mind comes and says, oh, it's here, it's so hard to be here. As if it was so easy to be elsewhere. But if it was so great to be elsewhere, why did we bother coming here? If everything was perfect at home, why did we leave with the idea that there might be something useful, something profound maybe in coming to this kind of environment so nothing particularly in just the fact of life walking, eating, resting, going to the toilet etc is hard to bear is difficult to do is full of pressure and discomfort and pain. Not that I, I, things that we might do here or things we might do in the rest of our life. But something seems to go on, something seems to, to get in the way between just being here and following those simple activities that can make it hard to bear. Hard to bear is the translation, is a translation of a word the Buddha used, dukkha. Most often in kind of Buddhist books, translated as suffering. But it's, it's much broader in meaning than just, than just that. So, certainly can mean uh, suffering, but really covers the whole range of that which is um, hard to bear. From the kind of... Uh, extraordinary, difficult, intense anguish that human beings can experience and know to the, just the kind of very more subtle, low-level unease, tension, discomfort, stress, uncertainty that we can all recognize. So, just in the short time we've spent here, we've had an opportunity to explore the possibility for sitting quietly, for walking quietly, and uh, quite possibly had the opportunity to recognize what it is for it to be hard. Hard to be here, hard to be. For our experience to be hard to bear. And what we're interested primarily in meditation practice is that dynamic, that which makes life hard to bear. And the promise and the possibility of spiritual practice in investigating what is hard to bear is coming to the end of that knowing a relationship to life that's unproblematic, that's free of suffering 
anguish, stress, unease. And so that's right at the heart of the way this place and schedule is set up, the way the container in which teachings are presented and what we're engaged in. Just sometimes reflecting in this way, having I having a sense of the kind of the wonder, the nobility of that, and the sense of gratitude and privilege <coughs> to engage in that which aims for nothing less than resolving, dissolving the problem at the heart of life of being human the problem of dukkha so if it's not in the activities, activities of life themselves what is it we're doing what strange uh, human dynamic are we engaged in that's making our life difficult what are the things we're doing that make dukkha, tension, unease, distress, anguish, suffering, a feature of our lives? One of, one of those things is the wish for things to be other than they are. right at the heart of any kind of problem we experience any kind of problem if we look below the various different details about it being this person or that situation or the, this, the timing or whatever it is because the details can kind of play themselves out endlessly as different sort of scenarios and possibilities if he hadn't done this, if I had have done that. But at the heart of so much that causes us pain and difficulty is the wish for things to be other. I wonder how many moments of today we've in some way or another sacrificed our well-being or ease in this moment and the very real possibility of that for the demand on life for it to be different for it to be other for it to be anything maybe except this it's a very strong tendency and then it shows itself in, in many different ways of course I remember once being here on a personal retreat for a couple of months or so and uh, having a room at the front side of the hermitage wing which is the kind of uh, action stations of Gaia House. It's where all the, the traffic comes and so but nothing else to do all day and I get very familiar with the fruit deliveries and uh, the various rhythms of See the personal retreat. <laughs> <Not> the, 
And about 7.30 in the morning every day when I was there, the postman would come. And for about 30 seconds while he got out of the car and delivered his letters and got back in the car, he'd leave his door open. So I'd get 30 seconds of Radio 1 <laughs> every morning. And it was extraordinary how much I could, that could play into my wish for things to be different. Suddenly Radio 1 became this great, attractive thing. It represented all kinds of uh, interest and kind of grooviness and uh, a kind of buoyant voice on, of whatever smug DJ happened to be there at the time. But at the time he sounded like the voice of freedom. He wasn't confined in this dreary retreat centre, you know. He was, you know, talking about whatever it was. And then the music, very upbeat, and all of that. (coughs) You know, Sundays were very difficult for me because no post delivery. (laughs) And just, the, the stimulus comes in some way or another in our life. Here we are in retreat, so we're talking in terms of a retreat perspective. And it doesn't really make any difference whether we're here or or anywhere else. Some stimulus is there. In this this case, for me, it's hearing something that has a certain pull to it. But it might easily be smelling something. Something attractive, in this case. Seeing something, someone. Tasting, touching, or thinking of so the various six senses. In the Eastern tradition, talks about six, the five physical senses plus the mind as a sense, so, and it's it's uh, the sense activity being that of conceiving or thinking. So some impetus comes to us through one of those sense doors, and it impacts in some kind of pleasant way. There's a sort of hmm. And if we're not careful, we can get pulled into all kinds of difficulty right there. If we are careful, if there's a kind of clarity and a balance, if there's a brightness of awareness, we can actually watch the process unfold and it's very interesting. Sound of the engine, of the postman, door opens, Radio 1. Ah, Radio 1. We can recognise... The way it impacts, the way something responds, or other people might have responded, or myself, in a different d- mood, different mind state, it might have been, oh God, Radio 1. Kind of arbitrary, depending on the, whatever the mind state of the moment is. But in this case, it impacts pleasantly, so I feel drawn off towards it. If there's awareness, if I'm doing my practice well, being a good yogi, breathing in and out, bright mind, I recognize, oh, there's a pleasant pull. I see the promise, the Buddha, very beautifully, and he talked about desire in this way, and pleasant experience. He talked about the promise and the danger. We, we, we get the promise very well. We're a bit slow when it comes to the danger, often. So this is clarity of awareness, I see the promise, that kind of, oh, 
Because that's what I'm responding to, is that sort of pleasant pull, that warmness, that thing, mmm, this is nice. I'm not really, res- you know, the Radio 1 is just the trigger for the, mmm, this is nice. And then it's like, oh, that's what I want. I want some, this is nice. Whether it be through, like I say, hearing something, seeing, thinking of something. The danger, the promise, mm, this is nice, and that's what I, I run off after. The danger is that when the mind starts to move in that way towards something else that's better, that's mm, cosy, <coughs> then I'm likely to find this poor old moment here lacking. I'm likely to be disappointed, disillusioned, disturbed, distracted. Is happy. <laughs> so it's very interesting. There's plenty of moments in our day where something pleasant impacts. Might be in the lunch queue, sight of the food. Something pleasant impacts, and we feel the pull towards might be just sitting here quietly and out of the blue some image of something that we like just pops into the mind like it does you know there's this kind of whole flow going on of various uh, things from the past or the present or the future coming through the mind and then some of them just kind of pass in and out some of them are just kind of racing back and forth, and some of them just sort of land and kind of hook us. So we're sitting here, breathing in and out, and then there's the thought of Christmas. <laughs> I don't know, whatever it might be. Some, some association we have of some pleasant experience, either some pleasant experience we've had in the past, or some pleasant experience we hope to have. Of course, there's no guarantees, especially with Christmas. <laughs> we, we hope to have it in the future. And then there's that, that kind of warm, fuzzy thing that goes with it. It's like, mm, oh, this is nice. The promise. Especially if it's there's something in the future. You know, what do we know? What do we know about the future? Nothing. We have no idea. Really, even about tomorrow, if we're honest, we can make these kind of informed guesses. Our rationale will say, well, you know, I can make a pretty safe bet there's going to be porridge, especially if you've been here for any length of time. (laughs) But in a larger sense, what do we know about the future? Nothing. And yet... Because whatever we've conceived of impacts positively, might be seeing a friend again, Christmas, whatever. There's this warm glow of, hmm, that's nice. And we follow that warm glow. Ooh. And we're off, sometimes, for 20 minutes, designing the perfect Christmas. Or imagining the reunion with a loved one after we've clawed our way through this retreat. (laughs) and then what happens 
if we're not careful, finally, finally, we kind of slow to learn human beings. After 20 minutes or so, we finally get bored with this kind of reverie. And then we come back, oh, and we re- realize with despair that it's not Christmas. It's, you know, here we are. And there's no, there's none of that, that warm fuzz just disappeared with, Chris, with the reverie of Christmas. And we tend to measure the gap between that lovely feeling I had and then the miserable state I, I find myself in now. And the, the, the more we've gone off into warm fuzz, the more we've actually bought into that uh, pleasant fantasy the more we find this moment lacking. The pleasant fantasy can start to represent the rest of life, if we're not careful. And then the situation now, which doesn't conform to our fuzzy fantasy, oh, not as good as, worse than. And we start to wonder why I'm here. As I say, could be in retreat, could be in any situation. You know, it's not fair. I could be whatever it is. As if we could kind of live our lives in warm fuzz. We might, hopefully, philosophically recognise that warm fuzz isn't possible all the time. And yet we kind of act as if we're sort of being cheated out of it. And that if we could organise our lives better, or if other people would just conform to how we wanted them to be or whatever it might be if, if kind of the situation was different then I could be happy in that eternal Christmas <laughs> or whatever it might be so just in a, in a very simple way as we sit here and practice one of the things that can make it very hard for us to be here is comparing to the kind of uh, unreality <laughs> and a, of an imagined better situation and the mind's very creative it can come up with endless, literally endless scenarios for a better situation better situation in the future, better situation that happened in the past, better situation in the present even. It doesn't have to be a trip to Christmas or the Bahamas. It can just be a better situation in my meditation. We can start to cast ourselves in this kind of great meditator role with light bursting out of the chakras. And instead of which... <laughs> it's pain in the knees and uh, busy mind again that measurement process goes on between the dreary state I find myself in and the kind of possibilities of what I really came here for which was a you know, mystical union with the divine or uh, something a bit more cosmic than this And so the flip side, there's this, there's this movement towards 
the pleasant, you know, the, the kind of abstract, the pleasant that could exist if, if life wasn't the way it is. And the flip side of that, then, is judging the way it is in a kind of difficult or damning way. Either find something that isn't present very likable, and therefore there's the move to that, or we find something that is present very unlikable, and then there's the move away from it. So it's the kind of the same dynamic, but it can either work in sort of pull, being pulled towards, or it can be work in terms of pushing away from. There's a line from a, a poem by a Tibetan teacher that uh, says something like, Nothing, nothing to. Well, nothing to grasp after, and nothing to push away. Something I've lost it. I'm afraid. But that sense of the possibility in meditation, in a way, what. We could define contentment or genuine peace of mind as not grasping after something, not pushing away anything, but the actual willingness to allow this, this unique expression of life that's happening right now, the only expression of life there is. The past hopelessly disappeared, future highly unreliable. This is it. Just to allow ourselves to be inspired by the possibility to allow this to be it without seeking after something else that ain't here or insisting that something is here stop being here. Again, just to, just to really notice, to reflect, to explore through the days if we find ourselves in a moment of tightness, of difficulty of it, the sense of it being hard to be here in some way we might want to ask ourselves am I engaged in being pulled towards something or in pushing something away and therefore not by the situation itself, but by my relationship to it, am I actually putting myself in conflict with life by refusing to allow that which is present or by insisting on something which isn't present? We have a very strong tendency to um, measure, which can also make it uh, hard, um, claustrophobic, endless to be here. We measure in all kinds of different ways. We, uh, measuring time 
for example. No, we we start to think, well, I've been here for one day out of. It's like, how long did that day last? <laughs> and that times that by, yeah. Especially when, you know, we incredibly self-defeating often. Sort of, it's sort of comic, but it's tragic as well. And so, when things are, are, are difficult, we, tend to, we want to know just how much of this difficulty I'm going to have to go through. So we say, well, this is like this much difficulty, and it's going to be like... We, we forget the idea that it might not be difficult two minutes from now. It might be delightful two minutes from now. We say, no, difficult is how it is, and therefore we extend this big block of difficulty right the way to the end of the retreat. Maybe we can just take off a couple of hours each day for lunch, which aren't too bad. <laughs> no, wh- why? Why do we? Why? Why would we choose to do that? And yet, the kind of uh, shaking of heads and chuckling suggests that it's familiar <laughs> to some of you. Just, just the, the measurement of time, just to the end of this sitting. It's like, a, you know, we're feeling some agitation or discomfort now. Same thing, we, we, we kind of make some view of how long the sitting is, and we fill it up in our minds with discomfort and agitation. Right to the end, till the bell rings. And then we try and we say, right, here we go. <coughs> and that's it. We've, we've told ourselves the story that here I am in difficulty, agitation, discomfort, knee pain. It's going to last right till the end. And, uh, okay, but, you know, we, of course we start to feel despair, disillusionment, distraction, dishappy again. But we're not... We're not asked to sit with our knee pain from now until Wednesday. We're not even asked to sit with our, whatever our particular personal brand of difficulty right at the moment is, until the end of the sitting. We're invited by this practice to... Explore it right now. Really, just for right now, just until the end of this breath is more than enough. And then let's see, the next breath is miles away. Let's see when we get there. What a relief. We can have a sense of of uh, that's you know that's kind of manageable, isn't it? To just to explore what's going on right now, and not to have to make it any more weighty than that. 
because the endless kind of uh, calculating that we can do around time and how much of something uh, how long and how much time and quantity can get very tough and a little bit of exploration kind of shows the futility of it you sit here thinking if if only the bell would ring it would be the end of the sitting as if the end of the sitting represents some fantastic uh, thing but all it is is go and walk and then we're outside walking thinking God when's it going to be the end of the walking as if you know what's there at the end of the walking ah and the bell rings ah thank God and then we just come back to the sitting (laughs) it's useful to to look at how stupid we are because it can bring a a sense of lightness that we can it's helpful I think to to uh, acknowledge our foolishness and therefore we don't have to take it so seriously so to look and see when we're when we've gotten trapped into the business of measuring how long and how much how long do I have to do this for no time at all just right now just to have a look right now what's happening and what's my relationship to it and is there some way I'm making this more sticky more complicated more hard to bear than it need be than it actually is and that measurement can uh, of course go into other other areas as well how long, how much can easily be good how good or how bad how well am I doing kind of dissection process of our meditation sometimes uh, you, the this image or metaphor of planting a seed and then we're constantly digging it up to see has it sprouted yet has it grown how long is the root how deep does it go because the poor seed hasn't got a chance sometimes with our meditation practice we'd, we're just too busy interfering with it to give it a chance to flower Again, what, what, a, what a relief it would offer us to stop um, nagging ourselves and worrying about how much of the time I've been present with my breathing and how much of the time I've been thinking about this and that. And to allow to a, a, a kind of natural trust in the process 
to be willing to pay attention and then the mind gets carried away and then we notice and we have the possibility to drop it it's interesting to see that it doesn't really matter how much of the time we've been caught up or led away for but the moment that we notice is very very significant because it's, it's full of possibility it would be a terrible shame if in the moment of waking up from our reverie in the moment of clarity, of brightness of clear knowing, of possibility to just drop it and reconnect and if we use that moment to then go and worry about how much of the time we were caught up for it's a tragedy because we're straight back into being caught up caught up in thinking about how much time we were caught up for so those moments of waking up I'd really encourage you to make, make the most use of it's a kind of uh, mysterious thing that happens we say oh I was caught up thinking about this and this and then I came back but it's not really quite like that that it happens if we look carefully we couldn't come back we were far away lost and in the middle of being lost whether it's for a few moments or for many minutes life wakes us up how, how could we have uh, decided we didn't decide to come back we were lost we were so lost thinking about this and that we were in no position to think about coming back and then life wakes us up extraordinary it's like life's constantly sort of slip back and say hello hello and we think oh yeah <laughs> and gone off again so just to give to give attention as much as possible to the quality of those moments of waking up and to see what do we do with them? Do we, do we... Are we around for it only to castigate ourselves for having been away? Or are we able to meet it with, the, with an appreciation and a willingness and a sense of that possibility to... Ah, this is it. Whether we've been caught up for a little or very long time... We're not caught up now. That moment of recognition is the moment where the world has dropped away and there's this. So don't fill it up with measuring how long, how much, how good, etc. It's like this is an image I, I often mention I, I think is very good it's like waking up from sleep imagine we wake up in the morning and as we open our eyes first thing we see and hear someone standing over us saying how long have you been asleep for? it's like oh god and the tendency would just be to pull the covers back over and, and yet that's how we treat our mind 
Mine's often some haze. And then it wakes up, life wakes us up. And we say, oh no, I've been gone for so long, I shouldn't have been doing that, I should have been meditating. You know, what kind of encouragement is that for the mind to stick around and be present and be awake and be steady? Poor encouragement. Just wants to hide away again in another vision of Christmas. So to, to, in the moment of waking up, to see if we can be around to kind of encourage the mind to stay, to see if there can be a waking up in gladness. Not to insist upon it in any kind of tight way, but really to, to look and see those moments where you wake up, what is the attitude of mind? Is it harsh? And if so, to see if it's a way to soften that into an appreciation. Because the, the, the few things that I've mentioned this evening of making it hard to bear, the seeking for something better, the pushing away of something we don't like, the measuring how long, how much, how good, all those different ways that basically as I said at the beginning, we're engaging in refusing to let life be the way it is. They're all ways of being tight. Insisting on what I want. Insisting on not having what's here at the moment. And so, one of the qualities that we can bring to our meditation as a, as a genuine and powerful remedy for tightness is to have that a kind of real care for what's happening. That care and interest that's there in the moment of waking up from being caught up to appreciation, the willingness to let it be, the gladness of being present. There's an American teacher called Stephen Levine who, when he uses the term awareness, he, rather than just talking about awareness or consciousness or knowing in the way that we've been referring to today, he and I and I, he speaks about merciful awareness. Caring awareness. We could define, in a way, awareness as that which is in touch with. And in order to be in touch with, in order to really pay attention, it has to care. That which is in touch with, that which cares for, that which pays attention to. And in in an interesting way, it's a similar definition to that which we could give to love. Yeah. Powerful, as we practice, as we're together here over these days, to not see, to see those two things as somehow synonymous. Love and awareness. Care and awareness. As Stephen Levine says, mercy in awareness. Merciful awareness. So that the sense of attending to our life whether it's breathing in and out, whether it's walking on the grass, whether it's washing our dishes, whether it's eating our food, is attended to, not in some kind of dry way of eating, eating, 
breathing, breathing. But in a way that carries with it a real sense of care, of interest, of a willingness to deepen into, to soften around, to be intimate with what's unfolding. And that care, that intimacy, that fineness of awareness is what can lead us into dissolving that tightness in the different ways that I've described that can make our experience hard to bear. And that which offers us the genuine possibility for ease, peace, well-being that is there in the absence of our tightness, of our suffering. And so I hope very much that it's in the service of that that our days unfold here and that our practice be for the benefit of that for ourselves and each other and all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.